0: Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's the very theme of the book of Galatians, the very essence of the message of the gospel, the very thing that Paul is writing and addressing in the context of this study that we'll finally get into after four weeks of introduction this morning. Galatians chapter 1. Take your Bibles, please, and turn there as we sort through all of that. I'll remind you. But again, on this Wednesday evening, all of our midweek ministries begin. There are four separate Bible studies for adults. We have plenty of activity in the kids' wing, the kids' corner for our children. The refinery up behind us here is for our teenagers. There's something for everyone in the family, and we encourage you to come out at 6.30. One of the most important things that we do is pray together. We have a prayer warriors group that meets on Wednesdays as well outside of these doors, there's a prayer request that you might have, something that uh, you would like us to pray for concerning your life right now, at each of the welcome centers, you can pick up a little prayer sheet, and you can let us know about that. And as a body of believers here at First Baptist, we would be happy to pray for you and the particular needs that you have in your life, both now and moving forward. So avail yourself of that opportunity if you're interested in passing on to us one of those prayer requests. The message this morning, the message title is something a little bit different, Dead Formalism or Vital Piety. What do those words even mean and and why does it matter? What it means and why it matters is exactly why we're doing this study in the book of Galatians, exactly why we're focusing on what is the gospel. What is the gospel according to Jesus Christ? And as we study some of those key aspects, as we challenge you according to the Scripture, as we ask you to think a little bit deeper about the issues at hand, both in the context of Paul's letter to the church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, we also want to challenge you in your thinking because the gospel has been perverted in so many different forms today, and modern evangelicalism There's this lawless gospel that says all you have to do is believe, and God will give you everything that you want, and there are no requirements for you. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are others who say you just have to have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in faith is not the gospel. We need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ has objective propositional truth that we must embrace to know Him as personal Lord and Savior. And then there's the seeker gospel that says there is something good deep down inside of you, and God just wants to tap into that. Listen carefully. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, and the only way you become alive is through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we focus on this gospel and reflect on this book of Galatians, there will be some who will begin to question There's salvation. Maybe I'm not. That's not our intent here at all. But if there's doubt, our intent is to show you where that doubt can be erased. And it is erased only in Jesus Christ. He's our hope, He's the promise, He's the essence of this gospel. We'll point out those who teach a different gospel. That'll get a little dicey. Some of you will say, hey, be careful, Pastor Jim. I can't be careful with the gospel. There is one way, not one A, not one B, not one C. There is one way, and the only foundation laid for the church is in Jesus Christ. We must cling to that. We must preach that. We must teach that and and not lead people down a path of destruction. Matthew reminds us of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount Ender by the narrow gate the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those that enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I want to begin by saying that as we gather here this morning for worship, as we sing these worship songs that are directly tied to the content of the message, as we pray, so we open up the, the Scriptures, there are two kinds of people here. Those who think they're doing right and going through the motions, but they don't know them. Churches are filled today with people who don't know them. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the demands of the gospel. They don't know the Christ of the gospel. And that leads to this dead formalism where we excessively adhere to all of the prescribed forms of worship. Well, I gave my money, Pastor Jim. I came to the services. I sang the songs. What do you mean? I don't know Him. That's my question for you. What is the gospel that sets you free? You can go through the motions and the formalism of worship or even this cultural Christianity And still be dead in your trespasses and sin. At the same time, there is another type of person, and that is a person who has believed absolutely and necessarily in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That changes everything, it changes our worship, it changes how we sing. It changes how we live, it changes how we think, and it is a vital kind of piety that understands the obligations of the gospel and the duties given to those who claim to know Christ and how we are to live our life in this present age. That is the fullness of the gospel. But in every church, there are only two kinds of people. Those going through the motions in dead formalism, and those engaging for the gospel in a vital kind of polity. And it all rests on the scripture teaching and the good news of Jesus Christ. As we turn our attention to Galatians, there was trouble brewing. There was a move away from the gospel that. Paul had preached, there were heresies that were developing and and raising their other ugly head to to distort the gospel in some way, to somehow change what Jesus said to make it a little bit more palatable, or at least the way we wanted it to be, that it's a pernicious undertaking that has eternal peril to it. And all throughout the age of the church, as soon as we tackle one heresy, another heresy raises its ugly head, and we deal with that, and another raises its ugly head. And one of the problems the Christian church today is we don't understand the history of the church in fighting off these terrible, dreadful, pernicious doctrines that undermine the truth of Scripture, but history matters. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of these battles, and we're going to talk about why we're still fighting that fight today. But let's make this perfectly clear. I've heard it reiterated by a number of people. If someone stands up in front of you in a church, or in a Bible study, or even in your home, and tells you that they've discovered new doctrine after two thousand years of church history you can be certain that that person is mistaken. We have a faith handed down by Christ Himself for all generations. Some things never, ever change. So as we look to turn our attention to the book of Galatians, I was struck by the wording of William Hendrickson in his older commentary as he begins his very first line of that commentary, the spiritual atmosphere is charged. It is sultry and sweltering. A storm is threatening, and the sky is darkening. And in the distance, one can see flashes of lightning, and one can hear faint muttering sounds. This is a battle for the truth. Something is happening in Galatians that is robbing them of the true gospel. A storm is brewing… A storm has arrived, and people are in peril, because Paul acknowledges and recognizes that reality. He writes the book of Galatians as, in some sense, a polemic, a speech or a piece of writing that's strongly critical and attacks a particular viewpoint and a, and a controversial opinion, Make no mistake, the Galatians is a very direct book and polemical in its nature. It is crisis-oriented. The church is facing a crisis, or the churches in Galatia are facing a crisis. We need to identify that crisis. We need to to speak to that crisis. We need to understand how, how Paul is addressing those immediate concerns and the opponents of the gospel. Paul will address many of the same themes that he speaks and writes of in the book of Romans. But Romans is not a polemic. He's not dealing with one particular issue. He is laying out the very essence of the gospel. Paul here is saying, there's a problem, and you don't even see the problem, so I'm going to make you aware of the problem. And it's polemic in nature. People who are undermining the gospel, who are attacking Paul personally in an ad hominem attack. They knew that they couldn't go toe-to-toe in a debate with the theology of the Old Testament with the great Apostle Paul. So, they began to speak evil of him and undermine those who were listening to him. Isn't that the very essence of our culture today? Paul deals with that in a very clear kind of way. See in the text that Paul sometimes is experiencing righteous anger, Paul saying, hey, what, what's wrong with you people? What, I, it hasn't been long since I was there. You heard the gospel. What, what, are you, what are you doing? He's pointed and curt with this group of people who are distorting the gospel. We must guard our hearts against this notion. the Christian has to be nice when calling out heresy. If eternity is at stake, we better be bold in our witness and make no apologies. And indeed, with the gospel, eternity is at stake. In essence, R.C. Sproul points out, the question comes down to, does saving faith require a trust in the righteousness of Christ alone that's the grounds of our salvation, question mark. Is this battle that has been fought through the ages of history, most particularly in the Reformation, really true, Christ alone? Or is it possible that a person can have a different view of the gospel and still be a Christian? That is the thesis of his statement. This is the underlying topic. This is, this is This is what he's going to address in the context of the Scripture. And he answers his own question quickly in the context of Galatians. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That is one of the arguments being made. We'll get to that eventually. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. That's a critical phrase. Paul is saying, if you believe there's other gospel, you are not really a brother. You're engaging in this formality of Christianity and denying its very essence. We have been conditioned in our culture to be so inclusive and so loving and kind that it really doesn't matter what you believe. Come and join us. And that's a pernicious approach to life. It does matter what you believe. And come and join us, and we'll articulate that belief, and then you'll have to to come to grips with it. This book of Galatians, Paul is stepping into the ring, so to speak, He's throwing down his gloves, a hockey term for you hockey fans, right? Off go the gloves. There's a fight for truth. Paul, in the context of this letter, fights for truth and unpacks the gospel and lays it out before us. Now, listen carefully. Some might, in the context of this study already concluded that I'm going to make a pitch or teach you a particular systematic theology, or I'm going to teach you a particular teaching from an individual in the course of human history and in the context of the church. We will touch upon all of that. What we are attempting to do is build a biblical theology. What does the Bible say? And you will find some of those giants in the faith that went long before us were trying to understand what the Bible said. And in essence, they were fighting the same fight that Paul was fighting in the province of Galatia. It was a fight for truth. What does the Bible say? Father, help us to understand that through the ministry of Your Spirit. Give us wisdom give us discernment and know the deep things and truths of Your Word. Allow us the opportunity to embrace it and to chew on it and to, to learn as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we, when we reflect upon the Scripture and we see its perspicuous truth, I pray that we would find great comfort, even as we sang this morning and the Christ of the gospel, finished work of our Savior. May we have a deeper appreciation for our own sinfulness. And may it all resound to Your glory. Help us as we enter into this study, reflecting on the deep things of the gospel and salvation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Paul. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen. Paul starts right off by pronouncing or offering his thesis statement, and packed into these five verses are some of the key elements that he's going to be addressing that were different between what he preached and what was being preached or challenged in these churches in Galatia. There's been much written over the course of Christendom about who exactly was the recipient of this letter. Was it those in northern Galatia, those Gauls and the Celts who had settled there, or or was it in southern Galatia where Paul had spent uh, one at least missionary journey, perhaps even two up until that point in time? I kind of lean in that direction, and that's why he can say firsthand, "You're, you're walking away from the gospel that I delivered unto you. It is this big, lengthy, historic, philosophical study. I don't think it changes the content of the text, but it helps us understand a little bit about what's going on and this other gospel that he brings up. So, Paul from the get-go here in his greeting said, Paul and Apostle. He is using his Roman name. Obviously, his Hebrew name was Saul. So, he is identifying himself, and he says, I, Paul, an Apostle. What is an apostle? The scriptures give us a detailed understanding of of what that means. An apostle is one who was qualified to be a witness of the gospel, for he had encountered or was a witness to the risen Christ. An apostle was one hand pecked by Jesus Christ to be his spokesperson, his voice in the greater world and context than in the church. An apostle was an office that died after the original apostles had passed away. For those teaching today that there's this new apostolic era or reformation taking place, and God is appointing apostles today, they're lying to you. They don't fit the qualifications of Scripture. But Paul does. But the people that he's writing to, especially those who are standing against him— will make the charge that Paul doesn't have the right to call himself an apostle because he wasn't witness to the resurrected Christ. He wasn't one of the original apostles. He wasn't appointed like the rest of them as he called them by the Sea of Galilee. But we find in Acts chapter 9, flip over there just real quick this morning, where Paul and his conversion story are recorded for us by the author of Acts, Luke, and Paul comes face to face with Christ, face to face with the voice of God who calls him and challenges him. And although we don't have all of the detail, just a synopsis of what took place, one of the critical aspects of this, as when Paul continues and goes to Damascus, verse 15. When Ananias in fear says, do you know who Paul is? Do you want me to go to him? He, he's killing Christians. The Lord says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God says to Ananias, this is my guy." I have chosen Him. I am sending Him. And He has all the authority of the apostles. We read about that authority again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reiterates the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then we go into a context of Scripture where he said that he he showed himself to numerous people. Remember, one of the requirements for an apostle was to have seen the resurrected Christ. So, Paul goes down and says that he showed himself to his disciples, and he showed himself to up to 500 brethren at one time. And then Paul says, "'And lo and behold, last of all, to one untimely born.'" he showed himself to me. That was on this road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul had equal status with all of the other apostles, and that is one of the most important themes in the book of Galatians. Paul is not just speaking, he is not just developing a systematic theology, he is speaking as a spokesperson for God the Father and his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean anything? That has critical importance in the context of the book of Galatians and in these churches. Seventy-nine times in the New Testament, we read about authority for the apostles coming from Christ himself. That is the apostle Paul. He said, I'm not from men. I, I don't get my authority and status from, from men. I believe he's making reference to something that, that we'll address later on. Nor through man, No one needs to write a reference for me. I have given you my resume. I was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to me, and He rescued my soul, and He appointed me as a spokesperson and an apostle to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Paul is claiming the authority of God right from the beginning of the book of Galatians. Why is that important? Because these people who are perverting the gospel claim that their authority was from God as well, but, but was it? How can two people speaking a different gospel claim authority from God? That's Paul's point. You can't. It is one way or it's the other way, and I am the true apostle here, not them. he lays out his resume before them. No, my apostleship, he said, is through Jesus Christ, salvation, and God the Father, again speaking to that divine authority that Paul addresses in Ephesians, chosen in him to be blameless in Christ before the foundation of the earth. And all the brothers who were with me, Paul's saying, I'm not alone in this. There are plenty who will say that the gospel that I speak is the gospel alone, and there is no other gospel. He is laying out or grounding the fundamentals of his argument and the fundamentals of the faith. Make no mistake, Paul is saying, I am an apostle, and I'm speaking for God, so pay attention to what I have to say. Christians love Paul when he speaks like this. Go get him, Paul. Christians would hate to have Apostle Paul as a pastor right? Go get him, Paul. He said, pay attention, I'm an apostle. I'm speaking on behalf of God, a message that I've been given by divine authority, by God the Father, and through Jesus Christ, I am telling you the truth, and I'm telling this truth to the churches of Galatia. Now, let me tell you why that introduction is critically important for many of the issues that we address in our culture today. there's an arm of evangelicalism today who would say, well, Paul was a misogynist, he was a bully, Paul ran over people, and that's just what Paul thinks. I'm not interested in what Paul thinks. I want to know what Jesus thinks. I don't like this Paul. I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. Paul is saying, wait a second, that's an incoherent argument. Because if you don't like me, you don't like the one who sent me, because I'm not giving you my own ideas. I'm speaking on behalf of God. You will hear today. In much of our culture, particularly radical feminists that say, we despise Paul and what he teaches about the home what he teaches about the gender, and what he teaches about sexuality. No, your problem and your fight is not the apostle Paul. You're picking a fight with God. You understand how serious this introduction is? There's no room for us to say, we don't like Paul, but we love Jesus. It's incoherent. If you truly understand who He was… If you truly understand the source of his apostleship, if you truly understand what he is saying, you are rejecting the one who God chose and commissioned to speak on his behalf. And what was Paul's to speak? The truth. And Paul does speak that truth. And Peter. Many of you are familiar with these verses because we studied Second Peter, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Speaking of Scripture, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's exactly what Paul said. This isn't from me, it's from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed into them, and they spoke and recorded the written Scriptures so that we might know the truth, and the truth will set us free, which means that any study in the gospel has to begin with a firm commitment to Scripture. And the reformer said, sola scriptura in Scripture alone. Does that mean we can't learn from other people? That's not what that means. Does that mean that the church hasn't contributed to our understanding? That's not what it means. What it does mean is in the end of the day, there is a norming norm. There is a ruling rule. There is one thing that determines truth from error. And what do you suppose that is? It is the Scripture. That's why the the gospel and and the deep truths of the gospel that we'll present to you cannot be tied to a system and easily dismissed, because we'll show you Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that validates the very things we're going to be saying about the gospel. The Reformation was founded on the Scripture and a proper understanding of the Scripture, and Paul addresses that in the context of His introduction and calls us to that truth, the norming norm and the rule that rules. In the house of God, when it comes to revelatory truth, there is one source to determine truth, and it is the Scripture. We'll talk about that a little bit next week as well. He speaks of all the brothers, those who are of a spirit of unanimity upon the reality of that gospel, those who were traveling with Paul as he preached that gospel to the churches of Galatia. We would know that as, as Turkey today, Central Asia Minor. Grace to you. If there's one word that summarizes very attack on the gospel that Paul will address in this context, it is the word grace in its most simplest form, God's unmerited favor. Someone is changed by the gospel only through the grace of God. You can't achieve it. You can't work for it. You can't become better in it. It is only of God and for His glory. When you change the gospel to include works or observances, it is no longer a gospel of grace, God giving you something you don't deserve. It is a gospel of works. You are working to get something that you do deserve, and Paul says they're not the same gospel. They're different gospel entirely. Now, I know what your objection is going to be. It was the objection of the Reformation. It's the objection of many churches today. Wait a second. Stop. So, you are teaching… That you can be saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's it. You can do whatever you want. That is not what Paul is teaching. I'm going to show you what he truly teaches and rob that argument from you. Paul is speaking of grace, he's not saying grace as a verb, be gracious to people. He's talking about grace as a noun, a descriptor. You are saved by grace as God gave you His unmerited favor and forgave you of your sins. You didn't do that. In fact, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you've done. He says, not only grace be to you, but peace. It was a common greeting back then. It, it, it meant meant joy. But, but Paul uses it here not as a common greeting. And he is saying that if we don't get grace right, we won't get peace right. There will be, be nothing for you to, to, to rest in if we understand that somehow the gospel is about what we do. You will always be doing, 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 and never sure if you've done enough. Paul says, I, I don't want you to worry about that. Because your salvation is in grace alone, and that's where your peace comes from. He's not saying, I wish that you enjoy a peaceful and quiet life. No, He is saying, I pray that you find a place of assurance that you might know that you have eternal life, and this life is in His Son. You follow that? Grace. And if you're restless and unsure, perhaps you don't understand grace if you're restless and unsure, maybe you don't understand the gospel. There is no security in any other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul defines two of the big issues that he's going to tackle, grace and peace. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, very key and central figure of the Reformation, struggled With grace and works. He struggled with the work of God and then what was required of Him. In the midst of all of this struggle, he asked himself the question, how can can I find a gracious God? Because he was raised in a system that believed that somehow true grace and salvation was rooted in, in cooperating with what God was trying to do. You played an important part of that, And Martin Luther did his best to be what God had required of him and concluded that that was a fool's errand because every time he looked at himself and knew himself as he was, he realized he didn't measure up. He said at one point, I hated the very God who set the rules. In other words, There's no way that I can attain to the lofty responsibilities of satisfying God. So, he writes in his commentary, Grace loosens the bonds of sin and sets you free, in fact, and peace soothes the soul. The two demons that torment us are sin And the conscience. You know you're a sinner, and it bothers your conscience, and there's nothing you can do about it that's solely by grace. And if you want your conscience to be at peace, your salvation must be seen in Christ alone, and that is where the peace comes from. All this kind of packed into the first few verses here. Paul's laying out the arguments. And what is that grace based upon? He tells us that grace and peace come from, first, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice there's nothing about you in that text. You notice that it says nothing about your works. It comes from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He died for our sins on the cross of Calvary to deliver us, us to set us free and to secure our salvation. Christ did this. Uh, this group who were distorting the gospel said, well, Christ started it. You have to finish it. And Paul said, that's not the gospel. That's not, that's not, it's not the gospel. That gospel doesn't lead to grace. That gospel doesn't lead to peace only through Jesus Christ and what we have termed in our theological Structure, penal substitution. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus became sin for us. He took all of our sin off our ledger and placed it upon Himself and died for that sin on the cross of Calvary. There's this thing called double imputation. We'll talk about it next week. And then He took His righteousness after forgiving those sins, and He credited that to our account, a forensic kind of righteousness. And we stand righteous before a holy God because of what Jesus Christ did So we're perfect. Oh, no, we're far from it. It is a forensic righteousness. It is a transaction that only God could do in Jesus Christ. We didn't do it. Critically important in the essence of the gospel as He lays it out here. He did this to deliver us from this present evil age. He did this to usher in a, a, a new era, if you would, a new age. He did this to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. He revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, the promised Redeemer that you heard about all throughout the Old Testament. He's here, and now neither is there salvation in any other. No legal system, no law, nothing can lead you to the throne of God, only Jesus Christ. Things changed at the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior, and all of this was according to the will of God and our Father. Wait a second, pastor. That doesn't make sense. I must have done something, nothing, 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 that gets us every time. We don't like that. We can't reconcile that. We, we don't understand that in its entirety. Well, who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been His counselor? Who are we to tell Him who's in and who's out? He does that. This is all according to the will of the Father in Christ Jesus, all according to this trust delivered to the Apostle Paul and the required faithfulness of speaking of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Leaving the results to the will of God in Christ Jesus. To whom be glory forever and forever. Amen. I want to focus in and hone on an important issue before we wrap up today. This deliverance from the present evil age was a deliverance not only of the penalty for sin, and this is great. He delivered us from the power of sin. And Paul says in Romans 6, as a believer, sin hath no more dominion over you. You're free. You're free. As we reflect upon that, Craig Keener, his commentary on Galatians, says deliverance from evil here is noteworthy. Christ died not only to free us from sin's penalty forensically, legally but also to liberate us from its dominion behaviorally, a message that counters a common charge against the apostles' gospel. Those who attacked Martin Luther and those who attacked the great apostle Paul were saying, but a kind of gospel that only God can bring to pass is a gospel that means you can be whatever you want to be and still be saved. That is not Paul's gospel. He saved us from the penalty of sin, but he saved us from the power of sin. And he says, Let not sin hath dominion over you. See, when we sin, we like to blame it on the devil. But when in reality, freed from the power of sin, you've made a choice. Aren't you thankful that you have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous? Who's faithful and just to forgive you? the cleanse you of all unrighteousness just for the asking. Are you thankful for that today? You can't live a victorious Christian life if Jesus had not overcome the dominating power of sin. You'd still be dead in your trespasses and sin and could do nothing but that. This is the wholeness of the gospel that is critically important, and in evangelicalism today, we don't like the second part. It deals with the lordship of Christ and the freedom from sin and living soberly and righteous in this present age. But if there's one phrase in Romans that is both confronting and a comfort to me is in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you because you are under grace. I freed you from that tether. I've given you what you need to live soberly and righteous in this present age. And then the response. So if indeed all of what you've said is true, Paul, what's the end game? Verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory to whom? To you because you've been such a good Christian? To you because you've done such a good job at this? Soberness and righteousness in this present age. Know all the glory be to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He did this, and you did nothing, nothing, nothing. R.C. Sproul reminds us that our understanding of the being and character of God is so thin and so superficial that we, even in our most sanctified state, have almost no understanding of who God is in His majesty and in His very being. And we don't really understand who we are until we first understand who God is. I want to take you back just a little bit to a series that we did a number of years ago and pose this question. Can you ever know and grasp the holiness of God without coming to the depths of depravity and the sinfulness of your personal soul? If we're to get the gospel right, we must see ourselves as we are, and we must see God as who He is, and the glory of the gospel is played out in Jesus Christ alone. And nothing doesn't mean a little something. It means nothing. Schreiner in his commentary said, when we actually see and feel the weight of our sin, our joy and the forgiveness granted us is inexpressible and full of glory. Does that come immediately when someone comes to know Christ as Savior? It does not. My wife can attest to this. I become kind of a baby sometimes at this reality, and I'll see a clip, or I'll see something said about the ugliness of my sin and the glory of my King and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I just well up with tears. I didn't understand that the day I came to know Christ… But the more I look in the mirror, the more I understand how glorious the gospel is. I did nothing, nothing, nothing. And you know what comes of that? True worship. Vital polity, not dead formalism. That all comes down to, do you know Him? And if you do, and are growing in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a glimpse of the gospel changes absolutely everything. We behold His glory. And in his presence, we unravel like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. And we cry, Who shall deliver? And like Paul in Romans chapter 7, we conclude, I thank. I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord, I have been delivered. The more that sets in, the more my worship and my life changes. And reflects what he says to him God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be glory forever and forever and forever and forever and on and on into infinity if you're still hanging on to this notion that you did something you were robbing him of his glory you've done nothing and when you realize that it changes everything that is the gospel that is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and for the glory of God alone. That is the argument in Paul's opening thesis statement, and he will spend the rest of the letter addressing those matters. Peace and grace come only from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and forever. And God's people said, Amen. That is the gospel. Thank You, Father. Forgive us for our arrogance. Remind us of Your sacrifice. And show us Your glory, so that we, when we talk about terms as lofty, the terms of the gospel, that our only response will be glory forever and forever and forever. Accept our praise. I thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.